You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello, and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. I'm Chad Bray. The old proverb, when it rains, it pours, is feeling particularly relevant today as Hong Kong is getting drenched with the tail end of a typhoon. But that's not the only storm that seems to be whipping around us. Tensions are rising, meanwhile, in the Taiwan Strait. China has violated Taiwan's airspace by flying military jets around the self-governing island unannounced. For a four-day period in which nearly 150 Chinese warplanes flew into Taiwan's air defense zone. Taiwan's prime minister has said this. Taiwan definitely needs to be on alert. China is increasingly over the top. We are very concerned that China is going to launch a war against Taiwan at some point. According to a report by the Wall Street Journal on Thursday, a small force of U.S. Marine and special operators have been secretly training troops in Taiwan on a rotational basis for at least a year. You'll be hearing from our U.S.-based reporter Owen Churchill unpacking a week that started with USTR, Catherine Tai's speech on the phase one U.S.-China trade deal and ended with the CIA announcing it had opened a new China unit and a report that U.S. Marines are secretly stationed in Taiwan. You'll also hear from one of our veteran reporters here on the China Desk. William Jang is going to unpack the reality of these headlines, claiming that the PLA is intruding into Taiwanese airspace. Why readers of a particular Taiwanese newspaper knew about the U.S. Marines being based there months ago. Andy's going to serve up a bit of a history lesson about why this coming Sunday is so important for the People's Republic of China, as well as the island it refers to as the renegade province, Taiwan, and why Xi Jinping will be making a major speech on the subject tomorrow. And Finbar Birmingham will be joining us from our Brussels bureau to unpack this week's major summit meeting of all the leaders of the 27 nations that make up the European Union. Initially, it was going to be a crisis meeting about China, but apparently it got all very AUKUS. So, as a former Nobel Literature Prize winner said, once upon a time, how much do I know to talk out of turn? You might say that I'm young. You might say that I'm unlearned. On with the show. We have Owen Churchill joining us from our informal West Coast Bureau. Hello and welcome, Owen. Hi, Chad. Good to be here. Now, we started this week off with a speech from the U.S. Trade Representative, uh, Catherine Tai. This podcast started out as the U.S.-China trade war as its title. So what was your takeaway from her speech? Well, it was highly anticipated. It's been, what, eight months since the USTR, like a, a lot of other agencies, started this China review. And what we ended up getting was actually not much in terms of new substance. And in fact, we reported at the Bureau on a few disappointed experts um, who were left kind of wondering, well, what, what was new here? And one of them said, if this speech had come in February as a kind of forward-looking speech, um, you know, situating the administration, then it would have been very welcome. But eight months down the line, it didn't offer any sense of what its specific findings were in the review. So some of the takeaways were that, well, in effect, the tariffs are for now going to stay in place. There will be some targeted tariff exemptions that they're going to roll out. They'll essentially be reinstating exemptions that were put in place by the prior administration, but expired at the end of last year. There was also some news that Catherine Tai, the USTR, will be engaging with Liu He in the coming days. That may be happening this week. But even that, I mean, we should take that with a grain of salt because 
they are contractually obliged under the phase one trade agreement that was inked last year. They are contractually obliged to connect every six months, I believe it is. For me, what the most significant outcome, that all aside, the most significant takeaway was that officials are basically signaling now that they're not intending on pursuing phase two negotiations. And some officials that spoke to us ahead of Catherine Tai's announcement, they said, in effect, they said, we hope that China will change. We hope that China will make reforms on things like industrial policy, on subsidies, and so on. But we actually don't expect them to. Nothing's changed in the past however many years since the trade war began. Why would it change now? So there's a sense now, especially since they confirmed that there are no phase two talks set to take place, there's a sense, I feel, that they're not seeking so much to change the status quo as adapt to the status quo. And they're planning to do that by shoring up US resilience, diversifying supply chains, getting closer to allies. So those are the things we should be expecting to um, be played up over the over the coming months, I would say. Yeah, and, and as part of the speech, you know, one area we wanted to focus in on, you know, it was talking about this phase one deal, you know, which was signed between China and the U.S. under the Trump administration, which at this point feels like a decade ago, but really is is, is not that long ago. And it was supposed to commit China to buying an extra 200 million U.S. dollars worth of products. How's that working out? Well, one thing that Catherine Tai said in her speech was that they have seen some signs of progress and they have seen some areas of the U.S. economy benefit from the phase one deal. But critically, she said that in general, China has not lived up to its commitments under the phase one deal. And as you said, the phase one deal primarily focused on purchases. Um, at the same time, the administration has acknowledged that a focus on purchases isn't the be-all and end-all. And there are a number of other concerns beyond that that Catherine Tai will continue to raise with Yoha, things like subsidies from the government, but they're not necessarily going to make those concrete elements of negotiations going forward. Yeah, and, and outside of trade, there was also a, another high-level meeting between uh, the top national security officials for China and the U.S. in Switzerland. And there are media reports saying that the talks went, you know, better than they did in Alaska. But um, what have you heard about what was discussed specifically? And is there a readout on the meeting? Well, this was what is reported by Bloomberg to have been a six-hour meeting. So there was certainly a lot to be to be said by both sides. And unlike the, the meeting in March that you alluded to, where there was, you know, a very there were fireworks at the beginning when they were playing up to the cameras. There was none of that this time. But there were some quite um, lengthy statements put out by both sides after the, the meetings. And, you know, some, some signs of progress, I would say, in the, in the bilateral relationship. From the Chinese readout, I would say that the readout was somewhat more measured than previous readouts we've seen from, for example, the Wendy Sherman meetings in Tianjin earlier this summer. There was no mention of the three bottom lines and two lists of demands that we're all very familiar with now. There was no explicit warning from China that we won't cooperate with you on things like climate change or non-proliferation unless you agree to step off on these other areas. There was no specific warning about that. Um, and at the same time, both sides agreed essentially to responsibly manage the relationship. China went a little further in their readout saying that both sides had agreed to get U.S.-China relations, quote-unquote, back on track. 
And then another somewhat promising outcome was that Biden and Xi Jinping will convene before the end of this year in a virtual meeting, um, which of course has not happened either virtually or in person yet, although they have had phone calls. But fundamentally, I think we're left asking, well, what has actually changed in the relationship? There are these kind of signs of progress um, in the tone of how things were conducted, but actually in terms of substance, you know, White House officials have publicly dodged questions about whether this was a breakthrough. And if we look at the underlying issues, apart from the release of Meng Wanzhou and the two Michaels last month, there's not really any public evidence that things are easing up on any of the fronts, like on trade, on human rights, and Xinjiang, on Hong Kong. And, you know, just the past few days, the US released its most kind of its sternest condemnation of Beijing's flyovers. So the thing, the question to ask is, where is the bar with these diplomatic meetings? You know, if the bar is set at, well, let's keep communication channels open, let's agree to keep talking, well, then in that case, it was a success. But if the bar is higher than that, if the bar is, is there going to be a shift in the dynamic? Is either side going to take some concrete steps um, to bring things down? in the temperature, then that certainly remains to be seen. We're all looking forward to the uh, chat roulette between uh, Xi and uh, and Joe Biden, but there's nothing that really takes the temperature down in, in the room, you know, other than an announcement from the CIA. And tell us about your latest report on sort of their new China unit. That's right. Today, William Burns, who's the director of the CIA, announced that the agency is going to be establishing a new China, a so-called China mission center. And that's the latest in a string of China units at various agencies in the in the U.S. government. We had one at the DOD, the China Task Force, at the Pentagon announced earlier this year. There is, of course, the China Initiative at the Department of Justice, which brings prosecutions on cases relating to commercial espionage and so on. Um, and there's also talk of a new China house at the State Department. So this new China Mission Center at the CIA, it's designed to focus the agency's efforts on coordinating its response to to China. And that really goes to show that given that this kind of harkens back to the US response to the Soviet Union during the Cold War, it does bring into question what we're hearing a lot from Biden in that the US administration is not seeking a new Cold War, is not targeting China. All we're doing is trying to defend the the rules-based international order. So that's the the latest sign that really officials are preparing for a long struggle with their Chinese counterparts, preparing for a protracted confrontation with China. All the while, administration officials are saying publicly, are saying the opposite. You know, this isn't about China. This is just about protecting our the international order and protecting our relationship with allies. We'll talk more about this later in the podcast, uh, but I wanted to turn to one headline this morning about Taiwan that, that's certainly been dominating the news. It's a Wall Street Journal report talking about U.S. special forces in Taiwan training the Taiwanese military. So what are you hearing about this? So this really speaks to what I was saying earlier about the status quo between the U.S. and, and China likely to be one of confrontation for, for years to come. Uh, There was a report by the journal, as you say, earlier today, saying that for the past year, the U.S. has deployed active troops in Taiwan to train their military personnel. And of course, the U.S. and Taiwan don't have official diplomatic relations. So this is a pretty big deal. But at the same time, we have to put it in context. and, And one of those contexts is that for the past few days, 
China has been flying jets into Taiwan's air defense identification zones at record levels. And the US came back with very stern condemnation of that. And it also comes after Biden in slightly confusing passing remark outside the White House a few days ago said that he and Xi Jinping had agreed to the Taiwan agreement. And it, it led to some confusion among observers about what exactly was this Taiwan agreement. So there was this report that came out, you know, happened to come out a few days later, and has led to some conjecture about, well, is this is this a, a, a tactical leak by the administration to really reinforce this idea that we are being tough on on Taiwan? We, you know, we we support Taiwan and we condemn China's aggression towards it. There was also some reporting, I think, in Politico that said that this this deployment in Taiwan was is actually public knowledge if you know where to look on the DOD website. Um, so that also raises some questions about whether this was a, a strategic leaking of information. Well, uh, Owen, thanks for joining us. We'll be keeping an eye on the skies as well as your reporting on scmp.com. Thanks so much. Thanks, Chad. Thanks for having me. William Jing is one of our senior journalists here working on the China desk at the South China Morning Post. William, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Hi, good morning. This is a stormy morning, and we are talking about a stormy issue. The stormy issue, stormy seas. Um, This week, we've seen a a marked increase in PLA activity over what's called uh, Taiwan's Air Defense Identification Zone, the ADIZ. Uh, But it's not being reported like that by much of the Western media. Can you sort of explain the difference between the zone and sort of actual Taiwan airspace? Right. Actually, the first step should be go Google ADIZ map around Taiwan. You will see that a lot of overlapping. And uh, Taiwan's uh, ADIZ is far stretching beyond the middle line of the strait, where usually that's the consensus where you don't step into. The PLA has been refrained to cross the middle line of the strait, but... On the southeast side and the southwestern side, these are the two key channels where the U.S. and Japanese submarines goes into South China Sea. That is exactly why I don't think that uh, the incursion into the ADIZ is a very uh, important gesture towards Taiwan, but rather it's more related to the South China Sea because Um, If we look at every intrusion into the ADIZ as a violation of some kind of airspace, it's not. Yeah, just a reminder that uh, uh, Taiwan has drawn its ADIZ too ambitiously. It actually stretched into mainland Chinese uh, provinces, into Fujian and Zhejiang. So uh, technically, any Chinese warplane flying up from Fujian's uh, military airport or Zhejiang's military airport, it's a violation, it's an intrusion. Instead, I would suggest that we should focus on t- our attention to whether it fly across the middle line of the street, which is considered much more sensitive, and that's more towards Taiwan. And uh, if you ask me, the reason huge in so-called huge intrusion is more a uh, response to the joint naval drill in the South China Sea, where three carriers, right, two from the U.S. and one from the United Kingdom, are having a joint exercise there. And by the composition of the Chinese uh, PLA's uh, Air Force, we, will, we can see that actually they flew a lot of bombers, 
capable of carrying huge, long-range uh, anti-ship missiles, including the, uh, the F-16, which is also a primarily an anti-ship aircraft. If they are going towards Taiwan or they are like having any intention on Taiwan, they, they don't need that kind of capability. Instead, it should be carrying more air-to-ground missiles and uh, having the better suppression uh, capabilities and all that. So uh, if you look deeper into the competition, I don't think that's uh, targeted at Taiwan thing, but rather it's a strong response to the joint naval exercise, which happened near China's National Day, where, you know, Beijing love face, you have so many big ships around my, my door near my uh, National Day, of course, there would be some kind of military response towards that. So that's my reading, actually. And to follow up on, on the idea of National Days, this coming Sunday is the 10th of October, but in this part of the world, it's known as Tintin Day. So can you explain uh, what that is and sort of, you know, why is there a good chance we'll be seeing Taiwan in the news again this coming weekend? Well, it's a very complicated part of the Chinese history, which now the Communist Party of China is trying to build its own dominant narratives on. The 1010 Day marks Dr. Sun Yat-sen's unsuccessful revolutionary efforts. But that's the first major revolution against the Qing dynasty. And the following up actually brought down China's uh, over 2,000 years monarchy. And by that, Dr. Sun Yat-sen managed to build the Republic of China. But during the Civil War, the Communist Party managed to uh, drive out the Kuomintang, uh, which Dr. Sun Yat-sen is one of the founders, and they drive the Kuomintang to Taiwan and established uh, the new China, where we, call, we know it as either the Communist China or the Red China or the People's Republic of China. So that's the whole historical part of it. But President Xi Jinping is going to speak tomorrow to mark this event. Interestingly, uh, most of the observers believe that he will use this occasion to talk about Taiwan issues. So uh, tomorrow would be an interesting occasion to see that, number one, will his uh, line depart from previous uh, official lines? Number two, will he make new timetable on the unification of Taiwan? And uh, more importantly, I think, it's how he wants to build this historical narrative for the party. The Communist Party is actually founded after the Kuomintang. So how is he going to build a bridge where Dr. Sun Yat-sen is probably now the, the most uh, commonly accepted figure across the strait in Taiwan and in mainland? So will he be building a new narrative on that to woo Taiwanese to have a different gesture? That's uh, a lot of questions that we have in mind, while well, tomorrow I'm going to cover it. Where obviously uh, Taiwanese leader uh, Chai Ing-wen will be also giving a speech. Based on her speech in these few days, I think she has been stressing on peace and Taiwan want to be uh, working with other democratic countries to build peace. And she has not been having a lot of uh, very uh, aggressive uh, gestures. So I think that might, might be a chance to see that uh, would there be a de-escalation 
from here. And sticking with Taiwan, um, you know, U.S. President Joe Biden's known for his his gas at points. I'm sure he's still trying to remember Scott Morrison's name. But he described the, you know, one China policy that the U.S. has as, as the, quote, Taiwan agreement this week and received some criticism. Could you just briefly sort of uh, walk us through that policy? Whenever the U.S. administration come to talk about its one China policy, all its policy towards Taiwan, it's a whole package of things, which include three previous communicates, where uh, Beijing have a very strong hold on the Taiwan Relations Act, which actually says that U.S. will help to defend Taiwan by arms sales. And uh, there are six assurances. This whole package is what we call a one-China policy, where there are a lot of intricacies in there. And uh, although U.S. officially recognized Beijing instead of Taipei, but it keeps an uh, informal, unofficial relationship where uh, there is a Taipei office in Washington. It's a de facto embassy, but it's, it can't be called an embassy because there's no official recognition there. China has go against the idea of U.S. Uh, arms sales to Taiwan. But it's part of the Taiwan Relations Act, where a lot of American presidents, even in the previous administration, have been trying to sell Taiwan arms in very good prices. In that case, I believe President Biden was having a slip of tongue, where he probably can't remember or can't recite the whole package of things. So he just said Taiwan Agreement, which he probably was trying to refer to uh, one China policies, uh, in which um, if you look at the transcript of uh, Jake Sullivan and the Yang Jiechi's meeting, the one China policy was again mentioned in both sides of uh, the transcripts and the readouts. I think uh, that's probably what he's trying to refer to, but uh, at that moment, <laughs> he probably didn't, didn't have the right words, so he just referred it as a Taiwan agreement. Probably... Uh, can say agreement on Taiwan or agreement regarding the Taiwan issue, but unfortunately, that's what came out from him. Yeah, that's that's my take. So earlier in the podcast, we spoke with Owen Churchill in our U.S. Bureau and talked a little bit about a Wall Street Journal story that's making headlines today. It's uh, basically saying that U.S. Special Forces and uh, U.S. Marines have been in Taiwan for the past year. They've been training the Taiwanese military. Now, speaking with Owen, it seems that this is not something that's necessarily new news, maybe just not noticed as much, but certainly seems to have been put out there at, at this time, you know, for a reason. So I, I wanted to see, you know, what's the view from Beijing? You know, what, what do you think the potential response is? First of all, Beijing has not uh, yet responded to that. But personally, I think this is not new. In fact, it would be very naive to assume that Beijing did not know about this. I believe uh, if Beijing's uh, military intelligence is of any capability, they should know this, right? And it has been an open secret where the U.S. has been offering military training because you sell the equipment to Taiwan, you better teach them how to use them. That's obviously part of the agreement. And Taiwan has never been denying of the kind of so-called routine military exchange and cooperative training with U.S. and other military allies. But Beijing has very strong lines on this, but it stays on the lines. It always says that oh, China is resolutely opposite this and will take necessary countermeasures. And that line repeats 
every time when we talk about military arms sales, talk about uh, Taiwan's potential purchase of any military equipment, either from U.S. or from France previously, they, this line always came out. So I believe Beijing would still stick to this. But bear in mind that this is not the first time uh, such story made to the news because in May, a Chinese language newspaper in Taiwan actually reported that uh, based on uh, Taiwanese soldiers complaining about oh, uh, why the U.S. soldiers were having a preferred treatment where they have a better milk than us, the kind of things to, to build out a story where there is a group of U.S. soldiers are training the Taiwanese soldiers. At that time, Beijing did not respond officially. But if you remember in August, uh, Senator John Corrin, I'm not sure whether he he did it accidentally or he, he said that there are 30,000 U.S. troops in Taiwan on his tweet. Later, he removed that. And did Beijing responded to that officially? No. But they activated Mr. Hu Xijin, the, the very nationalistic tabloid's uh, chief editor, to write an angry editorial saying that if that's true, the PLA should take action immediately now. But that's a tabloid. It's not People's Daily. It's, uh, so Beijing has been quite, quite smart in managing this kind of response. First, they will use Hu Xijin and his equivalent to air their unhappiness or anger. But yet, they never brought such lines into People's Daily, that's party's mouthpiece, or Xinhua, that's uh, state media, that's official state media that re would represent the party and the state council's voice. Instead, they would use the so-called adjacent voices or the slightly further away from the official voices to give pressure to Taiwan, where most of the time you see that uh, uh, Beijing's uh, State Council Taiwan Affairs Office has been sticking to its previous lines. In all these issues, there has been no additional words. So every time when we are sending media inquiries about such things, we, we kind of expect they are officially very stern, but they did not advance from the very stern, already very stern position, in which uh, gave us a feeling that in fact Beijing is on the surface jumping on its feet. But it knows that Taipei actually have lots of military links with many countries. And as long as you don't cross some boundaries, its military airplane will not cross the middle line because uh, remember when was the last time the PLA's uh, aircraft uh, fly through the middle line? It was uh, during Trump administration. He sent the top health official to Taiwan. That was what triggered the, the whole very angry military response. So I think Beijing knows what's going on there, no doubt. And Beijing will respond angrily and routinely. William, uh, thanks for joining us uh, in, in this port in what seems to be a horrible storm outside. We'll be looking forward to your coverage on scmp.com and your analysis, uh, particularly this weekend, about uh, Xi's comments regarding 1010 Day. Thanks again. No problem. Thank you very much. Hey, it's Jasmine, one of the SCMP podcast producers. Don't forget to check out our latest Inside China episode. This week, it's all about power in China. Tens of millions of people have been living without any electricity. There are no streetlights, elevators don't operate, 
and factories across the country are being forced to work shorter hours or shut down entirely. It's a three-way collision between China's planned economy, the international coal market, and Xi Jinping's pledge to limit China's emissions. Oh yeah, it's also going to affect your Christmas shopping plans this year. This week on Inside China. Finbar Birmingham, our correspondent in Brussels, joins us. Hello from a very cloudy and gray afternoon here in Hong Kong. Hello, Chad. It's nice and sunny here in Brussels, but it's very cool. Winter is is coming. Uh, Winter is indeed coming. You've had some late nights this week keeping up to date with the meeting of the 27 national leaders of the European Union in Slovenia. Interestingly, you report that you know diplomats are saying the EU talks about China were not considered a crisis topic. It was more the AUKUS deal that was a crisis topic. And it sounds like there are still some seismic aftershocks in the EU about the surprise announcement of the U.S., U.K., and Australia getting together for a defense deal. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'll give you sort of a bit of background to this story first. Um, This date, uh, October 5th, had been in the calendar for months when the EU's 27 leaders would gather to discuss China. Now, in a sort of sign of how differently China is viewed in Europe than the United States, this was going to be the first time that they'd gathered for a year since October 2020 to discuss China as a sort of, um, as a group. Now, if you think about how different that is to America, where they view everything through the lens of China and where top officials are constantly doing press conferences and so on. It was really quite telling to me that, that, you know, that this is not top priority. And if you think about everything that's happened in the last year, you had the investment deal, which was agreed and then subsequently paralyzed. You had the sanctions. You've had growing concerns over uh, human rights. You've had the COVID situation and mass diplomacy, all that good stuff. First time in a year that they were supposed to get together to discuss China. And then at the last minute, it was demoted. It was almost downgraded. So the meeting happened on Tuesday. On Monday evening, we were told that uh, the conversation has now been broadened. A conversation that was supposed to be about China is now about the European Union's place in the world. Um, within that, they would discuss this things like AUKUS, as you mentioned, like Afghanistan. So again, it really did suggest to me that China is not seen as a sort of critical issue in the same way that it is in, in Washington. A few people broke it down for me, and this is where the sort of line about it not being a crisis came up. Yes, it's important, but they don't see EU-China ties as being totally in disarray. They don't see it as as being totally in crisis. After the sanctions in March, the Chinese did sort of um, go cold, top-level talks, froze for a few months, but they've picked up again. As we discussed on the show last week, Wang Yi, China's foreign minister, spoke with his EU counterpart, Joseph Burrell, last week. You know, there, there's a sort of steady drumbeat of talks between the European Union and China, whereas, you know, the United States and China aren't speaking at the top level at all. You know, these top EU leaders don't meet very often, and when they do, they they generally tend to discuss what are described as immediate crisis issues, and you can throw into that bucket things like Afghanistan, which raised serious questions about the European Union's exposure on foreign policy and its dependence on the United States. This was really hammered home by the AUKUS thing, which happened a few weeks after that which created serious existential questions about the EU's foreign and security policy. So, you know, this is this is how it's been framed to me. They say China is important, but it's not the be all and end all. It's not something through which every other topic has to be has to be viewed. 
And, you know, why is that? I guess one thesis that's quite popular in Brussels and across Europe is that whereas the United States really sort of is fearful of the the rise of a competitor in China and, you know, a sort of challenger to their primacy in the world. Europe has already dealt with that 70 or 80 years ago. You know, Europe used to be the global superpower until it was overtaken by the United States. So I think it's fairly accepted that, you know, this is a multipolar world, um, that Europe is already not the number one power, whereas the United States is sort of coming to terms with this issue. And then if you look at the immediate neighbourhoods, you know, the United States to its north has Canada and to its south has Mexico. And of course, there are issues. But if you look at Europe, it's surrounded by Russia to its east, uh, Middle East, where, which is obviously a bit of a, you know, a, a tumultuous region, North Africa and Sahel to the south. So the southern border and within Europe, you've got the Western Balkans and sort of Serbia and Kosovo is kicking off a wee bit at the moment. So I think these are all viewed as far more immediate threats to European security than than China. And it helps to explain why it wasn't seen as such a big deal by many in Europe that the China talks were sort of broadened to include what were sort of considered far more immediate issues by uh, European officials. And I, I want to ask about the uh, EU-China investment deal. You brought that up earlier um, in the podcast. You know, it's effectively been on hold since May. So how much was it discussed at this meeting? We don't know how much it was discussed. I mean, the, the, the thing about this meeting is that we're sort of going on whispers and hearsay from, from people who have heard this and some diplomats who happened to be on the fringes of the meeting. They didn't. Bring it. Nobody was allowed to bring in their phones. They wanted to ensure that there would be no leaks. Of course, there have still been some leaks, but there have been not as many as you might expect. The CAI is the Comprehensive Agreement Investment, to give it its full title, was on the agenda. It was told We were told that it would be discussed that despite the fact that it's sort of considered dead as a doornail in the European Parliament until sanctions are removed, technical work still is going on on the, on the deal. You know, in the European Commission, the DG Trade, the, you know, the Department of Trade here, they're, they're still doing the legal scrubbing and working on technical issues like that. In some parts of, of Europe, it's seen as, a, as important more so than others. I was in, in Germany a couple of weeks ago and most of the political parties I spoke to thought it would be nice to have, but they realize it's sort of politically not so expedient at the moment. The status of it is that it, you know, I don't see how it can be salvaged until there's some sort of um, a give from China. I mean, it's been frozen because of the sanctions on European parliamentarians, on the uh, political security committee at the European Commission, which is basically every country in the European Union's ambassador to the EU has been sanctioned by China. Uh, these are the people who devise a lot of the policy. You know, academics, think tanks, they've all been sanctioned. So I don't see it being realistically viable until they're removed. Certainly the European Parliament won't remove their foot from the brake until the sanctions have been lifted on their members. Some people speculate that AUKUS, which has driven a bit of a wedge between Europe, some parts of Europe, I should say, and and the United States may be some impetus for reviving the CHI. You know, well, you know, you, you put us off on this front and we, we sort of move independently forward with our own China strategy, which was kind of the, the impetus behind sealing the CHI before the Biden administration came in in the first place last December. Personally, I'm not sure how realistic that is. I don't think it would fly with large parts of the parliament, which are fairly pro-engagement with the, with the United States. Um, so I think the CHI is where it is right now. And unless something dramatic happens in the next period, I don't think it's going to be seeing the light of day anytime soon. 
and within the the leaders that were there, the 27, there's one in particular that was looking for some solidarity uh, amongst the other leaders in the EU. Could you tell us a little bit more about what Lithuania's leader was hoping for, and did he get what he came for? I, I know we've touched a little bit on this in the podcast in recent weeks. Yeah, I mean, the Lithuanian situation is um, that they're at sort of at a bit of a standoff with China over this Taiwan situation. Um, Lithuania wants the European Union to to back it more strongly. As I said, know exactly what was said at the meeting, but the Lithuanian president, uh, Gitanas Noseda, spoke afterwards and he said that the European Union would act quickly and decisively, his words, and shall reduce its independence on China in various aspects. Now, you know, this is not necessarily that new. Europe has been saying for a while now they want to be less dependent on China. This was the thrust behind large parts of Ursula von der Leyen, who's the European Commission president. Her State of the Union speech a few weeks ago, she talked about the need to build up supply chains and sustainable industry to invest in, you know, European manufacturing, to build up semiconductor independence, stuff like that. It was the thrust also behind the Trade and Technology Council, which we discussed last week on the show, uh, which was agreed, uh, finalized in Pittsburgh last week. You know, this would see the European Union collaborate with the United States to rebuild some supply chains and collaborate on sort of certain technologies of the future, like artificial intelligence, like chips and and so on. So from Lithuania's point of view, they want to see economic solidarity. They want to see, um, you know, that in the industries in which China has been targeting Lithuania for punishment over the Taiwan affair, they want to see the European Union back it. I don't know that there's a great deal that the European Union can immediately do there. It doesn't have necessarily the tools just yet. It is developing something called an economic coercion instrument, which would allow the EU to hit back on third parties who sort of target their members with economic punishments and so on. But I mean, the way things move here is pretty glacial. I mean, we might be talking a few years before that thing's finished. Um, It's being progressed and we're probably going to hear more about it in the next month or so. But, you know, I think that they want to hear Lithuania, they want to hear statements of support. And to an extent, they have heard that. Now, interestingly, it's not coming from everywhere. I spoke with somebody very senior in the Lithuanian foreign ministry during the week. They were telling me that messages of support have come from some surprising and some unsurprising sources in in, in regard to their row with China. The French actually have been have been reaching out and have offered support to Lithuania, which I was surprised by. The Germans not so much. Uh, they've not really heard much from Germany on this front. And when Noseda, the the Lithuanian president, when he visited Angela Merkel in September, I heard that she issued him a bit of a rebuke. This was um, the subject of an internal note circulated among the Lithuanian foreign ministry saying that she had called him to task for, you know, rocking the boat on China, which shows that Germany's not really that supportive of Lithuania's freelancing on the issue. But look, we, we, we don't really know what's going to happen there. I know that Lithuania has some more irons in the fire. There's more it wants to do. Might hear more about that in the coming weeks. And um, just overnight, we've heard that Joe Biden and Xi Jinping are, are going to have a, a virtual summit. They're going to get together for, for real the first time in, in Joe Biden's presidency. But at the, at the same time, um, the, the EU is seeking its own meeting with, with Xi Jinping. So what can you tell us about that? Just that what you said, I mean, they want to they meet with Xi Jinping in some format. 
one of the topics at this week's meeting was how to do how how exactly should the European Union engage with China going forward, and that's a sort of logistical question, as it is a sort of materialistic question. Like they wanted to establish whether they should meet on a twenty-seven plus one basis, which would be all of the European Union's twenty-seven member state leaders, probably plus you know the Commission leader, the Council leader, and the uh, you know the top diplomat Borrell, which would be probably pretty messy. But this is how some parts of the union want to do want to do things are we a bit fed up with the franco-german axis whereby merkel and macron go and um you know hold their own talks with xi jinping as we saw within december we've actually seen them do that twice this year as well although that wasn't on official european union business so there's real appetite here in Brussels to re-engage with China. They do feel like the first half of the year was sullied by sanctions, by the collapse of the investment deal. And certainly within the sort of mainstream Brussels institutes, you know, the institutions, you know, Charles Michel, for example, certainly wants to steady the ship. They don't want things to to get any worse. They do want to, and this is a word that keeps being used to me, to re-engage. So, you know, we are are seeing appetite for that on the European front. 27 leaders all speaking with Xi. That that, that sounds, uh, you know, like a quite an awkward Zoom call. It sounds as though you won't really get anything anything done. I mean, I, I, I really don't know how the, the sort of it, maybe in a, in an actual summit format that would make more sense in a physical summit. This was the sort of the dream of Angela Merkel to have this Leipzig summit in September 2020. This was where you know they were hoping that Xi Jinping and, and his team would would be in Germany and they would have this big summit and it was sort of you know during the German presidency of the European Council it was you know the last sort of year of of Merkel's chancellorship never happened obviously because of COVID as we know Xi Jinping hasn't left China since the start of last year so it doesn't seem to me very likely that he would attend a physical summit there's question marks about whether he's going to attend the G20 which I'm going to be at later in this month in Rome that would be bad news because at this meeting they're going to be preparing for the COP26 which is coming a couple of days after that in Glasgow, which, as you you may know, is is a huge climate summit at which they really, really desperately need to make some progress for the sake of the planet. If the leader of the second largest economy in the world is not there, yes, of course, he will have a team of capable people on the ground, but it's uh, in negotiations, it often comes down to the top dogs and to the sort of what is said away from the negotiating table. And if the Chinese leader is only joining by a video link, I think you sort of miss a lot of that, um, you know, on the fringes, on the sidelines context, you know, what's said um, in the corridor before the meeting and and so on. So. I know that speaking to diplomats here, they're a little bit worried that if he doesn't attend, then it does stymie the potential of what can be achieved. Well, Finbar, thanks for joining us. I understand you're going to be on a reporting trip in London next week. So good luck with that. And also uh, make sure you have your HGV license available in case they need you to do a short haul while you're there. I think they might be desperate enough to hand the keys over to me. But um, yeah, I'll be there for just to, to... have some meetings and find out what's going on in UK-China relations, something we can maybe discuss in a couple of weeks. Excellent. Thanks, Finbar. That's all for a big episode this week. If you're listening on good headphones, you can probably hear the rain pounding on the windows behind me as I sit here in our studios on the 18th floor of Times Square in Causeway Bay. 
it's going to be a very big weekend for news from mainland China and Taiwan as we head into the Tintin commemoration. You, of course, will get the latest news and the best analysis at scmp.com. A quick reminder, if you're listening in the United States, you should be able to find this podcast via the SCMP Facebook page. It's a new feature unrolled this week amid, how shall we say, the less other positive revelations about the social media giant this week. I'll see you on Twitter, at Chad Bray. You can follow the SEMP Political Economy team, at SEMP Economy. Stay safe. We'll be back next week if we don't wash away.